Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of Moira, ghosts, legends, and lore. A healthy dose of debunking, aka scullying. I was wait, I was like, wait for it, wait for with, it. With there with she the, goes. There, there it is. Yep. But yeah, we we love a good. Uh, I don't know if that's an accurate claim moment. Hmm. Let's look it up in actual historical fact and drop a mic. Not literally, but figuratively, because these babies are expensive. Yeah, they really are. I know. All the sound designers I've ever met, anytime somebody does the drop a mic thing, they're like, no, no, don't do it. <laughs> just like that. But That's what they do. They, just like that. Just like that. But we want to thank our patrons on Patreon for being so lovely and generous for their contributions. And Hopefully, you should be getting something in the mail very shortly. Some little, you know, little goody goodies. And if you are not a patron and you would like to be a patron, go over to Patreon, look up Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We're there. And you can sign up on three different levels. You can do um, a $5 donation or a $10 donation. I think there's even like a $2 donation option. I think there is, yeah. And it based on or your level of donation too. That's also possible. So mm-hmm. based on your donation, you qualify for a certain level of access. And based on that level, you might get some additional content to listen to. Uh, there are some fun bloopers on there. You'll be getting some more this week. We also are, are, have. Are they mostly mine? <laughs> I think there's a nice even keel. You'll mm-hmm. also have a nice um, spooky time of the year all year rant coming your way uh, that was very fun to record and actually just basically us talking about how people think it's okay to be spooky one time a year but we're spooky all year round bitch so um, if you want to hear about that rant check out our Patreon. We also have some fun um, holographic stickers. We've got some postcards. Everything is customized and we're really excited to share them with those that also love what we do. So Go on down. Check out Patreon. Come on down to our Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. But today we are tackling a famous of the <laughs> famous not cases. Not so famous. <laughs> yeah. not, not so not so not famous. Famous? Not so not famous. Hmm. It's um, famous. It's an it's actually famous. famous case. It's famous enough that we're giving it two episodes. That's how famous it is. It's legit. There's a lot to cover uh and it's it's kind of an old favorite it's it's you know it's a case that everybody knows uh but it's fun to sort of hear again like a your favorite scary story (laughs) i mean it's perfect for the week before halloween am i right it's perfect for the week before halloween and because you know i feel like there are a handful of kind of infamous cases now in the united states uh well not just the united states i think there's a handful of cases that that you say the name and even people who aren't true crime people they're like oh yeah i know that like jack the ripper for sure yeah everybody knows who jack the ripper is um I think Ted Bundy is hitting that point where yeah, even if you're not a true crime person, you've probably heard of Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. Like they're they're infamous, right? Unless you're living under a rock somewhere and you have not had access to the internet ever. I mean, but I will say I've met some younger people who are not as familiar because it, you know why would they be? They're but, pure at heart. <laughs> uh, but this is one that I think is is up there, and um, this is the case of. 
Lizzie Borden. Lizzie! Good old Lizzie, which if nothing else, I think everybody knows the rhyme. The Lizzie Borden took an ax and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yep. I learned that as a child. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people did. Uh, It's also, can I just say, it's grossly inaccurate. (laughs) And she's already debunking. (laughs) Not to be that guy. Uh, But it is. It was her stepmother, not her mother. And she... They, they did not have anywhere near 40 wax. So I feel like that's just false advertising. Yeah. Uh, but on April 4th of 1892, someone did brutally butcher Abby and Andrew Borden in their home with a hatchet, giving each of them uh, over a dozen hits. Was it Lizzie? Was it their maid? Was it their brother-in-law? Was it some random stranger? Let's take a look. Uh, but now I'm I'm actually legit curious before we dive in. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you think she did it? I think she did it for sure, 100%. Like no question in your mind. It is done deal. Done deal. I think she did it. Yeah. Okay. And I'm pretty familiar with the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I've I've kind of gone down a few rabbit holes with it myself, like on my own time. Yeah. And I fully think that she did it, but I'm curious to see what your perspective is because I love hearing the Kim Scully moments and uh, the whodunits. <laughs> well, and that's where that's where I also say, you know, going down the, the dive of research, I, I learned some new things. A lot of it was kind of reinforcing things I already knew. There was a, a few myths that did get busted for me. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out and give a lot of credit to one of the books I read, which is The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century by Sarah Miller. Ooh. And uh, you can see that along with all my other sources uh, on our website. But I, uh, it, it's a relatively recent book. I want to say it came out in like 2019. And she she did her research. She did her deep dive. And so I found the work she did to be really invaluable in putting this together. That's awesome. Uh, so let's let's start off. Let's look at some of our key players. So Andrew Borden, he was born in 1822. He was a self-made man. Oh, he made himself. Yes, he made himself. <laughs> wow. But I mean, he he did actually. I mean, you say that, but he he had fairly humble beginnings. Um, he started out as a cabinet maker. He transitioned to working as an undertaker, so sure. Wow, okay, what a transition. Well, you're making cabinets. A coffin can't be that different, Actually, I'm sure. you know what? That's what? very similar to the story that we talked about um, on a ghost story. It's when we talked about the undertakers in Seattle. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, if you think about it, though, like, what is a coffin but a cabinet for a corpse? It's pretty accurate instead of dishes you got dead people you got dead people hashtag corpse cabinet um <laughs> yes i love you're welcome. it you're welcome <laughs> thank you so uh and then he ultimately he worked his way up to becoming president of union savings bank and director of bmc Durfee safe deposit and trust company in fall river massachusetts so man's doing all right for himself so he married Sarah Morse, and they had their first child, Emma, on March 1st of 1851. And at some point, Sarah gave birth to another child, Alice, but Alice died when she was about two. Mm-hmm. Sarah gave birth to Lizzie on 
July 19th of 1860 when Emma was nine. And something interesting, this I did not know. I assumed that Lizzie was short for Elizabeth. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, her given name was Lizzie. That's what she was christened. Huh. Yeah, right? So that That was an interesting moment. That was kind of interesting. Uh, Sarah died when Lizzie was three. Emma was about 12. And she died of uterine congestion. I'm sorry, what? Uterine congestion, also disease of the spine. So uterine congestion is basically a condition that affects the veins in your pelvis. What? It's apparently very painful and the veins can swell up, which impacts the blood flow, which just, that does not sound good. Uh, Yikes, there's no. a, yeah, And there's also a theory that she could have suffered a miscarriage during this um, time too, which contributed to the condition. And then the disease of the spine, that idea came from a time when they thought that any back pain at all was related to your spine and had to be caused by your spine. Which makes sense though with uterine congestion because that could have started to give her lower back pain particularly. Right. So I could see that being sort of tied in. Nevertheless, it sounds like a horrible way to die. For sure. And Lizzie was young, so she had virtually no memory of her mother. And Sarah made Emma promise on her deathbed. Emma's 12 at this point, remember, Mm -hmm. that Emma would take care of little Lizzie and kind of be her surrogate mother. Which, yeah, that's that's a lot to put on a kid. Yeah. So Andrew would go on to remarry in 1865. And he married a spinster named Abby Durfee Gray. Spinster, eh? She was like 37. And at that point, I guess, if you were unmarried and 37, you were a spinster. Ah, that makes it sound so much more interesting. But really, you're just older and unmarried. All right. You're just older and unmarried. Whereas now where it's like, hell yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I know, right? I'm like, well, you know, I'm not that far off of that, but I'm going to be married in a bit, so I guess that doesn't count for me. One person's spinster is another person's complete control over the television box. You know, it's very accurate. It is very accurate. Uh, so uh, we, I will say this, is, this was kind of interesting to me because one of the things that I knew from all of my reading of Abby Borden in the past was that she was always described as this like very cold, cruel woman and who was very nasty to Emma and, and Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that was super not true. Oh, was she yeah. nice? She was possibly the nicest person in the house. Uh oh. Well, and if you think about it, though, you know, history is is told by those who survive, and who survived? Lizzie, em- Emma, and Lizzie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's not tons about Abby. But what I could find on her, one of her friends would would later tell the Fall River Daily that she had lost in Mrs. Borden the best and most intimate neighbor she had ever met. Aww. A childhood friend of hers named Mary Ellen Brigham, and I think this is this is probably giving us a, a good kind of window into Abby. She said she was not at all affectionate or calculated to draw the children to her. She was simply mild and good. And so long as things went smoothly, she would have very little to say. Hmm. So I think she was probably a a fairly reserved woman and not necessarily outwardly affectionate, but not cold or cruel, just 
is everything okay? Okay, cool. I'm going to leave you alone. (laughs) So do you think that maybe Lizzie and Emma might have given her a bad name because she didn't like, or they didn't like her telling them what to do? We're going to get into why I think they gave her a bad name and it kind of make them, it makes them kind of look like dicks. (laughs) Not going to lie. I mean, I'm not surprised, but okay, cool. Continue. So... Well, and what's interesting too, because Andrew Borden is also described as being a little reserved, but but very courteous and temperate. So I think there's also a little bit of that generational thing too, where you know mm-hmm. your your parents grow up differently, so they act differently. And like yeah. my dad didn't hug me, so I didn't hug my children. I don't know. Right. It, it, the more I read, the more I was like, they get a bum rap a lot in how they're portrayed. I mean, I, I think even of the most recent Lizzie Borden movie with um. Is it Chloe Sevigny? Which, P.S., it's a horrible movie. It's awful. But uh, Andrew Borden is just really disgustingly portrayed in that. And you read about him and you're like, damn, that's really not fair to him. From at least, again, from everything I've read. So Lizzie herself didn't really start to have a problem with Abby until 1887. That's a while. That's a while, right? Lizzie would even call Abby mother up until 1887. So what happened in 1887? Money. Ah. Money happens. So Abby, every time, Abby had a much younger half-sister named Bertie. Like decades younger. Um, And she loved Bertie. Probably more than she loved anyone. She loved her half-sister, Bertie. And Bertie's family was nowhere near as well off. So they were going to lose their home. They could not afford to stay in their home. And that broke Abby's heart. So Abby went to Andrew and asked him for help. And Andrew bought their house and gave the deed to Abby. Which, I'm not going to lie, that sounds super sweet. Yeah, that's really nice. Like, Abby asked him, and it was really important to her, and she felt like, well, now I can take care of my sister, and my sister doesn't have to worry about getting kicked out of her home, and this is a thing I can do for my family. The one mistake they probably made is that they apparently did not tell Lizzie and Emma. Oh, yeah, Lizzie and Emma found out through outside sources and it oh, no. did not go over well with them. I mean, I'm not fully surprised that it didn't go over well if you're not going to directly tell them. That's like the equivalent of finding out like somebody died on social media. I guess maybe not somebody no, died. Be- okay, but, like- but no, no, no. Because I- I'm again, I'm going to defend Andrew and Abby because it was Andrew's money. The girls That's didn't fair. work. It was all his money. And in some ways, I can kind of understand it really had nothing to do with them. So why talk about it outside of, I don't know, you're living with them. That's the kind of thing you would think would be dinner conversation. Right. But I don't really understand outside of them kind of being spoiled biatches. <laughs> like, it, again, it doesn't make them look good. Sure. Because he did a really nice thing that had zero impact on them. So trying to appease them, he gave them a property that had belonged to their grandfather so that they could collect rents on that and get some income of their own. 
which again, very nice, very nice. Not something he is obligated to do. <laughs> sure. Uh, he even bought it back from them for $5,000, which again, this is the, you know, 1890s, a uh, couple, couple weeks before he was murdered. In fact, so Emma and Lizzie were so pissed about him buying this place for Bertie. That's when Lizzie started publicly badmouthing Abby, mm. referring to her as Mrs. Borden. No more mama. No more mama. And like going as far as if, if she saw Bertie on the street, she'd flat out ignore her. I mean, not surprised, really. <laughs> and what's funny is that years later, Bertie was asked about this, and Bertie didn't realize that the source of the conflict was their home. She said, I just thought they didn't like me. Oh, sad. Poor Bertie. I know, I know right? You're just like this poor, poor, poor Muppet, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, Muppet. Poor Muppet. <laughs> But what was really interesting is so Emma wasn't publicly bad-mouthing Abby because she seemed like a little too classy for that. But at home, she was the much bigger Sia next Tuesday. Like she was at home apparently just really wretched to Abby, more so than Lizzie. Lizzie would badmouth her publicly, but was still being pretty cordial at home. Emma was just like, that bitch. <laughs> oh no. So they're they're all living together in this house. They have a maid named Bridget. It gets implied at times that possibly Bridget and Lizzie were having some kind of affair. Again, most of this comes from works of fiction that I've read and not from any actual evidence. 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 Particularly because I read that Bridget got so frustrated with the atmosphere of the house, she threatened to quit three times. Dang. Must have been pretty bad. And she stayed out of loyalty to Mrs. Borden. And because the last time I think Andrew raised her salary and she's like, all right. <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that either. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would. Which is interesting too, because this kind of leads to the next topic, which is that it is often reported that Andrew Borden was a cheapskate, stingy, you know, never giving anybody his money. And this was part of the thing that led to conflict with, with Lizzie and Andrew was that he controlled the purse strings with an iron fist. Mm -hmm. And he would deliberately keep money and things from them. Like they lived in this, this house, but they could have afforded to live in a more fashionable, nicer, bigger neighborhood, right? And the girls wanted to live in a nicer house. They wanted to live in the pretty part of town. So the, the, part, the part of the, the town they lived in was fine, but their house was old. There was no running water upstairs. There was no gas lights. It wasn't super big. It did have central heat. That's nice. It had a cellar with a flush toilet. Wow. Right? It's important, guys. At least one place to flush your shit, quite literally. And I guess it's like, you know, yeah, sure, they, they could have moved to a nicer house, but I also see from Andrew's perspective, why? He liked his house and he grew up as a self-made man. He didn't take money for granted. And I see this a lot, you know, there's nothing wrong with where I live. I'm happy here. I'm comfortable here. Could I afford something bigger? Sure. But I could also use my money for other things like sure. bailing out my, my wife's half sister. So at the time of the murders, he was worth a lot. 
he was worth somewhere between the the numbers kind of vary when you look at them uh somewhere between 350 and 500,000 which again it is 1893 that is somewhere between 10 to 14 million dollars today damn and he was very careful with his money which is not the same thing as being cheap or stingy sure he owned a lot of property and was smart about it he spent money on the things that were important to him in fact Emma herself would say in a later interview that anyone who said that her father was cheap or stingy, it was a, quote, wicked lie. He was a plain-mannered man, but his table was always laden with the best that the market could afford. And Lizzie would say that he'd give her basically whatever she wanted. And I found this interesting because she then said, quote, sometimes I had to ask two or three times and that occasionally she would, quote, go to mother and she would always see that he humored me. So if dad says no, you go to mom. You go to mom. But again, who's mom? Mrs. Borden. Who is also the one that she's shit talking. So I find all of this really interesting. But let's let's take a closer look at Lizzie. Okay. What do we know about her? Uh, we know she was very active in the church. She taught Sunday school to Chinese immigrants. She spent a couple months in Europe when she was younger. I think it was like 19 weeks or something she spent in Europe that her dad funded. Of course he did. Yeah, because he funds everything. He is supporting his two daughters completely. Uh, And according to Sarah Miller's research, she liked orange sherbet, pansies, and was good at needlework. I mean, respect. Respect. She had brown hair. Her eye color is debated upon because it is described anywhere from ice blue to oh. brown or gray. <laughs> so hazel? I, I mean, depends on the light, I guess. I don't know. Uh, her school principal said that she was subject to varying moods. Oh. Isn't that everybody, though? Aren't we all subject to varying moods? I was going to say, that sounds moods? like us. Yeah. I'm definitely <laughs> subject to varying moods. Same. Uh, she had quite the temper. Same. Sometimes. I don't know if temper is the right word for it. I'm just cranky. <laughs> I mean, I can definitely get a temper if you nudge me the wrong way. I'm just saying. I, I have witnessed said temper. <laughs> uh, but, the, and I mean, again, the, the problem with, with this is that we're looking at people who are all commenting after the fact. They're commenting sure. on this after murders took place. So you're you're not getting... An unbiased look. You're getting people's opinions and perspectives colored through the eyes of murder. That's so interesting. Is there no documentation of them prior to the murders? Well, it's not that there's no documentation, but there's no, I mean. Or like personal descriptions, I guess. Today, we have social medias. We have email. We have everything's on fucking video. Um it's not like they had that then. Like, you could look through someone's personal correspondence, but it's not like anyone's giving interviews to the newspaper about my neighbor down the street who bakes a really nice pie. Sure. You know, so it's not until something happens that you get written records of these things unless somebody kept a journal or unless you find those those letters or whatever. Uh, we we are privileged now that so much of our lives, oh, privilege or curse, depending on who you ask, Touche. Are, are recorded. So 
<laughs> we say as we are recording ourselves. As we are recording. So we, know, <laughs> we know that both her and Emma, they actually didn't really concern themselves with the workings of the house. We do know this. They basically were like, mm, Abby, you and the maid can do it. I'm tossing a little shade at them because again, I'm like, you're living in your... And, and yes, I know. If you were an unmarried woman, which both of them were, you are more limited in your options. But it's not like either of them, it's not like women didn't work. You could. If you had to, you got a job. They yeah. they didn't. Well, they, they didn't were, need to. They were being spoiled. They're they were being spoiled everything. But they didn't look at it that way. They looked at what they didn't have. Yeah, spoiled. I know. It's it's funny because I read about them and I'm like, you two both kind of bug me i feel maybe i'm just getting old where i'm like i kind of feel for andrew and abby i get where they were coming from they're like you're being freeloaders grow up so we we know that about a year before the murders there was a robbery at the Borden home in the middle of the day there was money and some gold other small items that were stolen andrew reported it to the police it was never officially solved it is a popular rumor that lizzie is the one who did it would is, you be surprised? Honestly, uh, there's nothing to substantiate it. Okay. And again, it's not like he was withholding funds from her. So why should she if he Well, wasn't? partly because to stick it to them. She's pissy and wants more money, but you know. But again, there there was nothing to substantiate all of these rumors going around that that she had done it. Did she? Sure. Maybe, but because also. The barn had been broken into twice after that. So it might just be y'all need to get better security. Sure. Get one of those nice ring doorbells. You know, because that's easy to come along in uh, the 1890s. It totally is. They, they did have three locks on the front door. Well, at least they weren't locked. breaking in the front door. Well, some of them you could only lock from the inside too. So that was like an extra measure of security. And most of the rooms had individual locks on them. So, if it was Lizzie who did it, what's her motive? Was it just money? Was it freedom? I'm under my father's oppressive thumb. What's interesting that I found out is that at the time of the murders, neither Andrew nor Abby had a will, at least not a will that anybody found. Huh. I found an article from the Boston Globe. It ran on August 13th of 1892. And it reported that neither Andrew J. Borden nor his wife, each possessed of property in their individual right, left a will. Seems to be pretty thoroughly established as a search of the premises does not reveal any will and all the legal papers and documentary evidence of the murdered people's holdings was found this afternoon in the family safe, which had been broken open. Yet it is authoritatively stated that, although every other paper the man presumably had in his possession had been found in good order, nothing in the shape of a last testament was found. I have a question in regards yes. to that. Yeah. In this period of time, did they have to go to like a lawyer or someone to help them write up a will? Like, would there have been a person that they could have reached out to locally that would have known about a will had there been one? They could have. They also could have written something out and, again, signed it and put it in their safe. 
And then someone could have taken their will that was in the safe because it was broken into. Mm -hmm. Because this is the thing. You got Andrew, who's 69, and Abby, who's 64 at the time of the murders. It is the late 1800s. Life expectancy? Yeah, they're like in the end of their days at that point. They're in the end of their days. So it's really strange to me that somebody as wealthy as Andrew has not bothered with the will. It seems unlikely for sure. It seems unlikely. There's also, you can also look at the order of the murders because Massachusetts at the time had pretty specific laws about how money and property were inherited. So on the off chance that Andrew had been killed first, technically at the moment he died, his wife was entitled to a certain amount of his money. And if she died, then her family would be entitled to it. Interesting. And be able to make claim to some of it. But not Lizzie or Emma. The law at the time, and and I read about it and I didn't write notes about it, but it was basically like a spouse was guaranteed something. If they died, if, if, if the wife was still alive and the husband died, she was guaranteed like a third of it if there was no will, which is not an unsubstantial amount of money. But if Andrew died and then Abby died, which is, you know, then in theory, her family could have laid claim to that third portion if there was no will. Hmm. Because technically, it would have gone to her with that, with that death order. Uh, but that being said, Abby and Lizzie did give her family, like they gave them a chunk of money. They, they gave them the property when, when after the murders took place. So mm, I don't know that that necessarily played into it. It's just kind of interesting to examine. Sure. Uh, another story that gets told a lot is about the pigeons. I haven't heard about pigeons. See, this is one I remember reading, like, I read it, I I even went on a whole thing when I was in high school, because I wrote a paper about Lizzie Borden, I talked about the pigeons, and now I read, like, oh, the story isn't quite what I thought it was. So, the Borden family kept pigeons. Okay. What is often talked about is that they were Lizzie's loved pets. She loved them so. (laughs) They were her tiny little children. I don't know why I'm using a British accent, they were British, they were very American. Uh... Maybe the pigeons were British. The pigeons were from Britain. That they were they were well-bred pigeons, proper <laughs> pigeons. They had tea each day and biscuits. Were they little tiny teas and little tiny biscuits for their we, little tiny feet? We little tiny teas, the little tiny shoes, the little <laughs> tiny top hats. Oh, the top hats! <laughs> and it was lovely and very civilized. But then, sadly, one day, something happened. Uh oh. Poor wee little pigeons. Okay, I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a longstanding story that Andrew Borden, as, as punishment for something, maybe the burglary that may or may not have happened, uh, that Lizzie may or may not have done, Andrew Borden took a hatchet Uh-oh. and butchered her beloved birds. Oh my God, all of them? All of them. That's messed up. Wait. Because yes... But, because, and to be fair, like, what used to get said is, he used a hatchet, and then later, that very hatchet was used on him! No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not long before, he did kill their pigeons. He, he strangled them, 
not beheaded them. They still didn't like it, but it's, you know. Oh my God. How do you, could you imagine strangling a freaking pigeon? I mean, some people do that with chickens. Like, oh, you you eat meat, girl. (laughs) I know, but I don't want to know about the process. Yeah. Well, that, I think everyone who eats meat should know about the process, says the vegetarian in the room. So he did kill the birds, but again, he strangled them. He didn't behead them. And, there's nothing to show that the birds were beloved pets of Lizzie's or that they were anything more than dinner. They ate the pigeons. Like, that was why they kept them. Pigeon nuggets coming soon to your freezer aisle. Wow. Wait, yeah. are they going to be called the Lizzie Borden's pet pigeon nuggets? They're probably just called pigeon nuggets. I mean, people use people still do eat pigeons, but, like, that used to be more of a thing than it is now. They're birds. So do you think that potentially this whole story came about just because they wanted to eat a bunch of pigeons and it was their time and then someone took the story completely out of context? Yes. Got well, it. To be fair, Lizzie did later talk about her father killing the birds, but not in a, my father murdered my beloved birds. It's just, oh yeah, dad strangled the birds uh, shortly before we we had them for dinner. So I, I think it's another example okay. of taking like a line of something that's said and this one little tiny thing and then creating a whole mythology around it. Got it. Uh, uh, similar to the burglary, you know, there was a burglary. And from there, oh, it must have been Lizzie. Woo! It could have been, but probably not. Sure. So let's fast forward day of the murders august 4th 1892 it is august in massachusetts it is hot it is very if you've never been to massachusetts in august it's freaking hot noted yeah it's freaking hot man it's the worst (laughs) i hate it so it's about 7 a.m andrew and abby are having breakfast with john morse john was emma and lizzie's uncle their mother their birth mother uh their birth mother's brother. He had come the night before and he had stayed. This was pretty common. So John left at about 8.45 a.m. He went to visit relatives. This is kind of funny because he was so alarmingly specific in his alibi. He was like, I went to see relatives. I got on the streetcar. I don't know why I'm making everybody British now. I got on the streetcar. It's fun. And I got on the streetcar with six priests. Oh, that sounds like a joke, like you're setting up a joke. Right? <laughs> so the other day, I got on the streetcar with six priests. <laughs> so uh, Andrew leaves about 9.15 to go to some meetings. He was going to some of his properties. And about 9.30 a.m., Abby goes upstairs to the guest room where John had been staying to, you know, clean it up. And Bridget is sent outdoors to clean the windows. At about 10.45 a.m., Andrew gets home. Lizzie greets him, helps him pull his boots off so he can put on his slippers. Please remember this detail. He goes to the sitting room to have a nap. Bridget also goes to her room to lie down. Lizzie goes out to the barn through the back door because she needs some weights for fishing. She re-enters the house at 11.15 a.m. And that's when she yells for Bridget. So Bridget comes in because Lizzie is screaming for her and she says, Bridget, father is hurt. Fetch the doctor. So Bridget runs to the doctor's house. He's out making house calls. Lizzie says, all right, go get my friend. 
Now, during this time, a neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, was passing by, and Lizzie told her that she thought her father was dead. Bridget runs to another neighbor, and Bridget tells the neighbor that Mr. Borden was dead. Doctor arrives. Lizzie says, I think father has been stabbed or hurt. They go in. They find Andrew Borden brutally bludgeoned to death on the couch and like head caved in. Yeah. Yeah. Cut in two. The left side of his face was so smashed in. He was completely unrecognizable. His hand was still warm. He had been hit somewhere between 10 to 12 times. Dang. The medical examiner said of Mr. Borden's wounds, the most ghastly thing I have ever seen. And actually, according to Miller's book, he had a gap two and a half by four inches in the left side of his skull. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jeez. So now Lizzie's like, someone find Mrs. Borden. She has been gone running errands, but maybe she got home. She also asked someone to send a telegram to her sister, Emma. Emma was away visiting friends and hadn't gone a number of days at this point. That does eliminate Emma as being a suspect, at least in terms of actively committing the murder. Okay. The telegram that was sent to Emma ultimately also, um, it didn't say anyone was dead. It said her father was ill. Why? Why would it say ill? Well... I don't know. Would you want to get a telegram that says father's been brutally murdered on the couch? Stop. You should come home. Stop. Sorry. Stop. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe he's dead. Like to say he's ill. I mean, I get it though. Like it, it, it's, it's like emailing somebody that somebody's dead, you know, she's traveling by herself. I'm not saying it's necessarily what I would have done, but you're calling her home. And if you're like, father's dead she's coming home by herself she's gonna be really upset and then she's gonna come home and be more upset may as well just like pack all that upset together and be like <laughs> you know how i said he was sick those are really nice ways saying he's actually dead he's dead and i did it what so who said that who said that not me it was the cat <laughs> reluctantly bridget the maid and a neighbor went looking for abby they went up the stairs to the second floor and they found her in the guest bedroom. She was face down on the floor. Blood pooled all around her. The position of the body suggested she had been trying to get away from whomever was in the room with her. Also, side note. So there are crime scene photos for this. Uh, They are readily available on the internet. We can talk about if we're going to put them on our Instagram or not. They are kind of graphic, actually, even for, you know, poor quality black and white. There, you see the situation that is happening before you. But Abby's picture was not an accurate picture of how her body fell because her body was moved before they took the picture. Why? They were, there was a, a number of things, one of which they like smoothed her skirts down, I think, to try to like preserve her modesty or, or make her look more presentable. But even by 1890 standards, that was a big mess up on the police's part. They should not have moved the body prior to taking the pictures. Um, 
So what you see is not exactly what her body looked like when they found it. Same with the the furniture in Andrew's picture was shifted a little. Huh. It, it didn't have as much of an impact, but it is hard to say how that could have changed the crime scene. Which again, when we start talking about the trial is something I want you to think about. Okay. So the the blood had started to dry and that was taken by everyone to mean that not only did she die before Andrew, the blood was drying. She must have died significantly before Andrew. In fact, the doctor who examined her said that she died somewhere one to two hours before what's most commonly reported as 1.5 hours. She lived through the first blows. She had bruises on her face from where she hit the floor. Like she fell completely face down, slammed her face on the floor. One of the wounds um, had kind of a flap of skin that suggested the first hit actually came as she was facing the killer. Ooh. Yeah. And that she kept scrambling after she hit the floor until after a few more hits, she was dead. She'd also been struck about 18 times. Woof. Let that sink in. Pun intended. 18 times. Yikes. So Lizzie's told her stepmother's also dead. She loses it. Understandably, you know, your parents are dead. Your stepmother's dead. Your dad's dead. Police show up, searching the house. They're questioning Lizzie. They're questioning Bridget. Was anyone else around? Well, her uncle, but he left home earlier. They had, you know, his alibi, even though it was alarmingly specific. Um, did she see anyone? And they specifically asked her, this isn't funny, but it makes me laugh. They specifically asked her if there had been anyone who was Portuguese around. Why? Because there was a, apparently a fairly large Portuguese population and there was a whole lot of prejudice towards oh. this Portuguese population. Isn't it nice that things have changed and we've moved beyond petty racism? I'm fully rolling my eyes right now. You just can't see it through the audio. (laughs) But I can. So word is spreading too, and people are flipping out. Again, understandably, axe deaths. That's not, you know, great. But there even at one point, there was a rumor that Jack the Ripper had come to town. Oh, no. Like, okay, I'm sorry. Not to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Please be that guy. A, Jack the Ripper never used a hatchet. So like, that's just stupid. You like that that's what I'm hung up on? <laughs> I just like that the commentary is, that's just stupid. It's just stupid. <laughs> like, come on, people. It might be the 1890s, but have a little common sense. So uh, Lizzie did say that that there had been a stranger lurking around and, and he'd seemed agitated. Some reports say that he'd actually banged on the door. Others say he was just lurking. And a neighbor did also report seeing a stranger lurking around. Hmm. So there you have that. Now, this is interesting. It came time to search her room. And she was like, "Mm, you need to search my room. There's no reason for you to search my room. That's shady. It's a little shady, right? She's like, well, it was locked. And I was locked my door. I'm the only one who can unlock the door. There's no reason to come in here. And her behavior is starting to seem a little odd to a few people. Even like somebody would reference Abby as being her mother, and Lizzie was very quick to say, She is not my mother. She is my stepmother. My mother is dead. 
I mean, technically they're both dead, so <laughs> I know it's like, oh, sucks to be you. <laughs> but and and like, sure, sure, you have this kind of hostile relationship at this point with your with your stepmother. But you know, your stepmother's dead and murdered like two hours ago. Maybe bring that hostility down a notch or two. Just a smidge, just a, smidge. a little bit. Um, one of the officers on the scene, Officer Harrington, he would note Lizzie stood by the foot of the bed and talked in the most calm and collected manner. Her whole bearing was most remarkable under the circumstances. There was not the least indication of agitation, no sign of sorrow or grief, no lamentation of the heart, no comment on the horror of the crime, and no expression of a wish that the criminal be caught. So she didn't care. That's what it reads. All this and something that, to me, is indescribable, gave birth to a thought that was most revolting. Oh, well, the thought being, could she have done it? Could she she do one? I will say, I will say, as I have said in the past and will continue to say every single time, you cannot judge someone's reaction and take that towards guilt or innocence. Sure. Everybody processes grief differently. Everybody processes shock differently. You can't look at out-of-context moments and use that as a definitive way of saying this person is guilty or this person is innocent. I agree. I mean, it, I, I can still think she's guilty and still say you shouldn't do that. Sure. So uh, Lizzie's on their radar now. The other thing that's kind of not working in her favor is the times of death. Like, okay, so let's pretend it was a stranger, right? Stranger mm-hmm. breaks in. I'm going to rob this place. Yay, robbery. I love my life of crime. (laughs) Oh, no. I am caught by Lay Lady of Lay House. I have a random hatchet that I carry around with me for funsies. Um, I'm going to hit this lady of the house with my hatchet. Oh, well. Killed somebody. Should I rob the place? No, nothing's missing. So I obviously didn't rob the place. What should I do? What should I do? I should lay low for an hour or two. Maybe take a nap. Maybe take a nap in case anybody else comes and I should like hit them in the hatchet too. Also, there's not like, this This place isn't huge. There's not lots of places they can hide, especially when half the doors are locked. And, and if you're hanging out in this house for an hour or two, there's two other women hanging out. Aren't you going to kill them as well? I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you indeed? And this is the other thing that that kind of takes the, at least the robbery. I mean, the robbery reason I think is stupid to begin with, but look at how they're killed. They were hit over and over and over and over again with a hatchet. That's not what you do when you accidentally get caught breaking into a place. That's what you do when you are pissed. Yep. When you have a grudge against somebody, when you are angry and you just let loose. Especially that many times. Like, like I, I remember hearing about lots of different like crime scenes and it's like people that stab someone like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you, you did it like the third time. They're dead. But you're but just going to sit about, there yeah, and it's you're going to keep going that. at it because it's not, it's not about killing them. It's about getting your anger out and aggression. Well, it's, out. it's the, it's the crime of passion. It's why the vast sure. majority of people who commit crimes of passion will never go on to reoffend. 
they're not serial murderers. They are somebody who, in a moment of extreme emotion, lashed out in the worst possible way. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 people who do that are not necessarily a danger to society because they're they're not gonna do it again. I'm not saying they should just be, you know, go frolicking through the park, but just sure. so whoever it was, there was something personal behind it. Now was it possible there's other people who had grudges against Abby and or Andrew? Andrew probably more than Abby. Um, business, you know, he was a businessman. He was a very wealthy man. But again, you come back to the level of anger involved. What did he do that pissed somebody off that much? I mean, they and were it, very spoiled. They were very spoiled. But then if I'm a complete stranger who's broken in or somebody who knows Andrew with a grudge... Why kill Abby and not kill his daughter and Bridget? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. That being said, there has been speculation about the exact timing of the deaths because the doctor that made the the determination that there was a one to two hour window between their deaths, one thing he did not take into account was the difference in locations. Mostly that Abby was killed on the second floor of a very hot house with the sun coming through the window and beating down. This would have impacted how the blood dried. That's very true. In fact, one theory that's been put forward by a forensic expert who had looked at this case in contemporary times is that Abby might have only died 15 to 20 minutes prior to Andrew. Oh, dang. That would make now, more sense. That would make more sense, at least in terms of the intruder theory. Sure. We don't know if that's what actually happened, but it, it is a valid point to look at. We do have to consider that the different locations could mean the time of death between them wasn't as big as we think. Sure. Just throwing that out there. Right. So Emma gets home. Family retires for the night. Uh, police officer is is on site outside. He does make note. He sees Lizzie washing some blood-soaked cloths. What? How? However, Lizzie said she was on her period. So is this vampire menstruation part two? I mean, I was going to say, I, I feel kind of proud we have managed to work in menstruation into two episodes in a row. Go to <laughs> Booyah. I do have a goal to make menstruation less of a taboo for people to talk about because it should not be. Anyway. Preach. Also, even if, like, let's say it wasn't menstruation. Let's say she was, they were blood-soaked cloths from a murder. How genius is that? Because you know this dude police officer, he's not going to quit. As soon as girl says she's on her period, he's going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's, I'm, mm, do you need, oh, chocolate? Do you, I, mm, mm, I, I need to leave. My mom's calling. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I'm not kidding. If I ever need to murder someone again, I mean, if I ever need to murder someone, allegedly, um, I'm going to find a way to work my period into things because there is no better way to make men uncomfortable. <laughs> True story. I'm just saying. It's such a good, which is like, it's, 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 it's blood. Yeah, it's my period. What do you want from me? It's shark week and the guys run from the room, which they have. They've all turned off the podcast now. Okay. <laughs> Love scaring away those men. 
I've been doing that for years, baby. So Alice Russell, uh, who had actually been staying with the family, she was a friend. She would come forward and say that she saw Lizzie burning a dress the Sunday after the murders. I knew about that one, actually. Lizzie told her it was stained with paint. And part of why Alice came... Well, but wait... Part of why Alice came forward is because um, the detectives had asked, you know, when they were going through the girls' closets, is this all their clothes? Because mm-hmm. they were looking to see if if any of the clothing was, you know, sure. bloodly splattered. And Emma had said, yes, it is. And then realized she had misspoke. But it was Emma and Lizzie who insisted she come forward. Why? Just, well, there's two ways of looking at this. One is that Lizzie was innocent. And so why wouldn't she come forward to say she misspoke? It was completely innocent. She was burning a dress that, and that's how they got rid of clothes. And she was burning a dress that was covered in paint. Like nothing to see here, folks. I mean, the other is it was going to come out anyway. And you're getting on top of it by saying, go do it. Cause you're, you're going to slip up or you're going to tell or whatever. So Al is saying this though, it doesn't look good. Like, sure. They hadn't found any blood soaked clothing outside of, you know, the menstruation stuff, which I just, I'm sorry. I love the idea of this poor, awkward police officer being like, um, they don't pay me enough for this. I'm a rookie. They just sent me on here to make me uncomfortable. I don't know what's going on. Help me. And then he probably like quit the next day. And then he quit the next day because he means. <laughs> so. <laughs> It happens. So it's Monday, August 8th. Police are back. They are searching. They are looking for anything. And what do they find? They find a hatchet in the basement. Uh, the cellar. I say basement and cellar interchangeably, but that's not really fair. But what's interesting is that the handle has been broken off. And it looks like it is a clean break. Huh. So not like, oh, no, I was, you know cutting off a pigeon's head or something and it just flew off but like somebody deliberately broke it and it looked like it had happened recently from the way the wood coloring was that's odd could this be the murder weapon it seems to be the right size hatchet not axe just saying and there was some weird substance on it could be blood could be rust we're not really sure let's send it to evidence evidence and Lizzie is looking more and more suspicious to them. So an inquest is held. Lizzie is called to testify. And she gives a lot of weird answers, a lot of inconsistent answers. She doesn't seem to know much about what's going on, the state of affairs, the state of her father's affairs, his money. And in this kind of bizarre exchange, she's asked about Abby. And... The prosecutor said, you've been on pleasant terms with your stepmother since then. Yes, sir, she says. Cordial, he asks. It depends upon one's ideas of cordiality, perhaps. He says, according to your ideas of cordiality? And she responds, we were friendly, very friendly. And he says, cordial, according to your idea of cordiality. And she says, quite so. And he asks, what do you mean by 
quite so. And she says, quite cordial. I do not mean the dearest of friends in the world, but very kindly feelings and pleasant. I do not know how to answer you any better than that. That's very roundabout. It's very roundabout. And so later, he's continuing to kind of press her on this about her relationship. And he said, he asked her, like, well, what did you call her? And she said, I did not call her mother. And he said, what name did she go by? And she goes, Mrs. Borden. And so she goes on to admit that she used to call her mother, but that whole business that happened in, in 1887. With the money. With the money and the sister. So she stopped. So then they ask Lizzie, and this is where it gets even more weird. They ask Lizzie, where was she when Andrew gets home? She responds, I was down in the kitchen reading an old magazine that had been left in the cupboard, an old Harper's magazine. However, Bridget had given her testimony already. And Bridget testified, she heard Andrew getting home. And part of why it was so clear when she heard him getting home is because all of the locks were locked, which was unusual for that time of day because that meant some of the locks were locked from the inside. Somebody was going to have to go to let him in. They never locked all the locks during the day. Hmm. So she hears him trying to unlock the door and she hears Lizzie on the second floor, laughing. Oh, no. So I have questions. She's on the second floor, like Abby's dead body? Or, okay, she hasn't seen the dead body yet, but there's another killer. So she's on the second floor with the killer hiding out somewhere? And she thinks it's funny? Well, the laughing, we don't really know what was going on there. But... What then happens is prosecutors pushing her on this because he has Bridget's testimony saying, no, 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 Lizzie was upstairs and she's adamant. I was downstairs, but then (laughs) she's asked again and she's like, oh no, I was upstairs. Okay. maybe, Maybe I was on the stairs. It's a mess to read through. It really is. Wow. But... But wait, there's more. And this is a big but. I cannot lie. <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> I thought you'd like that. I like that a lot. A possible reason for her kind of incoherent answers, her contradictions, that is not talked about a whole lot. Girl was on morphine. Oh, wow. Really? Because after the murders, it was like the day after the murders, the doctors prescribed it to her to keep her calm. Well, she's else morphine gonna, like, does? <laughs> yeah, she's not going to give a straight answer when you're on morphine. Ooh, she's lucky she knew her own name on morphine. Then that's not even like a reliable it's, testimony. Mm, see? It's not. However, between... Bridget's testimony, Lizzie's incoherence and inconsistency, and a testimony from a druggist who said that Lizzie had tried to buy prussic acid the day before the murders, which is insanely poisonous and is only available via prescription. That's some shady shit right there. Some shady shit. She said she wanted it for, she had these like seal skin things that she wanted to use it on. 
they wouldn't sell it to her. Also, side notes, the night before the murders, after she tried to buy this prussic acid unsuccessfully, the family did become quite ill. Andrew and Abby had the worst of it, and they thought maybe it was food poisoning. Interesting. Sounds like somebody did a little something to their food. Maybe. But between the druggist, Bridget's testimony, and Lizzie, and all this other kind of circumstantial stuff they had, this is enough. She is officially indicted on December 2nd of 1892. She is charged with murder. And if she is found guilty, this is a hangable offense. She will be given the death penalty. Damn. And she is set to go to trial. However, we're going to be talking about the trial, the aftermath, and the hauntings. The afterlife. The afterlife. Next week. Ooh. I'm excited. So stay tuned <laughs> to hear more about the trial of Lizzie Borden. Yes. The trial's Narnar, too. It's going to be a good one. The trial's Narnar, but also what happened after the trial is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know why I'm acting like it's a spoiler, because again, at this point, everybody knows what happened. I'm assuming everybody knows what happened. And the hauntings are interesting. So sure. uh, I, I'm kind of excited to dive into that end. But I feel like you can see now, listeners at home, Gabby, everybody, you can see now why this this was a or will be a two-parter. There is a lot to uncover in this whole affair. For sure. And we like to give it to you we in do. like our increments so that your brain doesn't explode. So, you know. Because Kim just likes her research a little too much. Uh, no such thing. And you'll learn more about that next week. Next week. Which brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! Kim, what you watching? So I've been watching some stuff. I've I've been reading a bunch. So I've read a couple of books recently. I I mentioned already the one I've been reading for... um, for this, the Lizzie Borden one, which is fantastic. I also read a great book on H.H. Holmes called H.H. Uh, Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. I gotta say, I gotta say, it's by Adam Seltzer. And I think he is like the male Kim. <laughs> oh, really? So, because I looked him up because I, I was using his website as well. He's a tour guide. He's a tour guide in Chicago. Uh-huh. And uh, paranormal investigator guy. And like, he scullies everything. I love oh, him. I love that. It's perfect for you. I'm like, I was reading his website and he's like debunking all these things. And I'm just like, marry me. Um, <laughs> but uh, his book is, is really, really interesting. If you want, if you're a big H.H. Holmes fan and you're really, really like hung up on his whole mythos of being this, this, you know, absolute devil of, of, of white city. Um, it's going to break your heart. But if you're interested in, in a really thorough look at the true man and what actually happened, mm-hmm. it's great. Nice. <laughs> so uh, I, I've been reading a lot, but I, I have been watching 100 Days of Horror is still going strong. I watched a movie 
This is great. So um, I watched this movie called A Bucket of Blood. <laughs> oh, I think I saw you post about yeah. it. It's it's a Roger Corman movie. It's it's one that I, I think I've seen pieces from before. I've never seen it straight through, but um, it's a ridiculous movie. It's from like the 1950s, and it's this this uh, horror comedy. Um, you've got these beatniks and this this like poor guy who's kind of he works as a busboy at this cafe where there's all these really cool beatniks hanging out in this counterculture and he just wants to be accepted and so he um accidentally kills his landlady's cat and turns it into i know uh roger corman is is hard on cats but he he turns it into the sculpture and all the beatniks go nuts over it so you can see how this escalates he starts just killing things and covering them in clay and being like this is my sculpture look at it's beautiful but it's it's really funny and really ridiculous and it's super cheap super low budget but like if you want a good 1950s dumb funny ridiculous horror film uh then then a bucket of blood you, you really can't do wrong with it it is it is a good time uh i've also been watching it's on i don't know like food network or something oh is it a spooky show where they bake things that are spooky it it is it's the the halloween baking championship I think I saw like a commercial for that and was like blown away by people's costumes. Well, so part of what's really fun about it is that the host is Carla Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, she was on Top Chef years ago. And I really liked her on Top Chef. She's super fun. And it, it's 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 for me, I like some of the cooking and baking shows. I don't watch them all religiously. I like Top Chef mostly, but uh it's been really fun just watching what they create and watching the curveballs they're throwing them and the judges are all really fun. And and that's been my like escapist television um, nice. to watch when I need a little break. So little there's break. a couple, there's a couple things for Creepy Critics Corner. Nice. What about you? What you've been, what you've been consuming? What media? Well, <laughs> media I've been editing this podcast <laughs> is what I've been consuming. <laughs> Um, that's creepy critics wonder for me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I actually was really excited to see that there's a new season of unsolved mysteries on Netflix. And I watched one episode from it and I'm excited to see the Japanese episode, which I haven't watched yet. What's it? it, Uh, it's not in the suicide forest, is it? I don't think it's in the suicide forest. I know. Someone in our group posted about it. I don't remember who, but it talks about it being a paranormal episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and it's in Japan. Oh, oh okay. I it just sounded really interesting. I, I'm I'm wanting to watch it in order, so I didn't like skip ahead to watch that episode. But I've only seen the first episode of that show for this season, and I, I'm like the idiot that I'm like, wow, this is so fascinating so many like little tips that people have and there's this crime is so wild and okay so who did it <laughs> but it's called unsolved mysteries for it's a reason so it's still unsolved it's um unsolved, fun fact don't watch that and expect the mystery to be solved because it's literally called unsolved mysteries <laughs> and uh and you remain forever disappointed <laughs> yeah true 
um, or motivated to try to help solve it. You know, you do you, but I, I haven't really watched anything of substance other than that. Although, you know what I did put on today just to have on in the background while I was like tidying was Interview with the Vampire, which is one of my favorite movies. So your answer is better. (laughs) Was not Human Centipede. It was Interview with the Vampire. And I still think the scene in the very beginning where Tom Cruise lifts up Brad Pitt, like when he's turning him into a vampire in the very beginning and they're like flying in the sky. It's so dramatic. And his legs are just like flying. That's when Celine Dion's singing, here, far, wherever you are, I believe my heart's going to stop because you've sucked all the blood out of it. That's what happens, right? That's how that works. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. I might be remembering this wrong. Technically, Titanic was like a romanticized version of that moment in Interview with the Vampires. this way because we're vampires and we don't age ever even if you turn us when we're 12 then we're just children forever and it's really awkward because we start having sexual feelings but we're still children that's how that goes right well you know if you haven't seen interview with a vampire kim just did a beautiful translation of it for you that's 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 basically the movie and the book is the interpretation uh book my version (laughs) (laughs) very entertaining either way Great film. Love that movie. Uh, That's just me. But thank you for listening. We have a Patreon that we talked about earlier. So feel free to join. If you also have ideas for Patreon and you're on our Patreon or you're not on it, but like would like to be on it and have some fun things that you would like to see on there, we are open to ideas. So please feel free to share. Um, we also have an Instagram. It is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We post some fun stuff on there. Check it out. We also <laughs> by have... we we mean Gabby because she does all of this because she's amazing. Oh, I'm just throwing Kim. that out there. Gabby like works her behind off and does all this stuff. Thanks, and I like friend. like things. <laughs> I'm like, oh look, it's the heart. Bing. And I appreciate every little heart I can Bing. get, even when it's a black, cold heart from Kim. Cold dead, cold dead, cold dead, cold dead heart. But yeah, check us out on Instagram. If you haven't told your friends yet, tell your friends. Um, We also have, you know, a website. The website will give you basically all the information that we tell you about in this section. It's schoolishtendencies.com. All of our show notes, all of our references, every single episode is on there as well. And a little bio about us is on there. We also have a link to our old podcast, which is a ghost stories. So if you haven't checked that out, you can check it out through that website as well. We also have a Facebook page at Schoolish Tendencies Podcast. We also have a Twitter. It is Ghoulish Podcast. And we also are on basically every platform where you listen to podcasts. But what really helps us out is if you enjoy this podcast, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review because it truly helps us have a wonderful day, but it also helps us gain exposure. And that will also just be good for everybody. And we love to hear your feedback. So please share with us if there's any ideas that you have, any topics that you'd like us to cover. We always love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And... Having said that, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Oh, yeah, because is this this is the episode that's coming out right before Halloween, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then we're gonna continue with the second half of this. It'll still come out the week after in November. 
It's basically going to be like a Lizzie Borden sandwich, and the filling is Halloween. It's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. It's so chocolatey <laughs> and bloody. Blood. Blood. And having said that, stay. stay.